Well, let's turn to the book of James. I've been thinking for some time that it might be good to speak out of this book, so I plan to do a number of messages, I don't know how many at this point, from this letter, this epistle of James. Usually when we think about James, we, at least some of us, are aware that Martin Luther had a little problem with it because he thought it put too much emphasis on works and not enough on faith. But I'd like to entitle this message Authentic Faith because that's what the book of James is about. It's about what real faith is, authentic faith. We'll uh, try to look at the first, I think, 18 verses today. Really, I want to give some background information to the book uh, this morning, give somewhat of a basic overview of the book, and then look at the first 18 verses. It is a very practical portion of God's Word. And one writer that I uh, read says it's severely practical. And I thought that was a a good way of kind of encapsulating what this book is about and like. It's not just a a bunch of miscellaneous ethical teachings, you know, kind of like... Well, it's like kind of like the book of Proverbs. It's not like that. There's a flow to the book, and uh, I hope with that we can realize that. Part of the way we can see some of that is to realize the situation that it was written into. So that's why I think it's important to give some of the background information. But uh, maybe before, we, before I start trying to uh, analyze some of what's written here, I thought I might have Jim Kelly read this first 18 verses. I thought James Kelly should be a good one to read <laughs> the, book, the book of James. So the first uh, 18 verses, if you would, Jim. You could, or you could, why don't you just come on up here? James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. 
Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when the lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Thank you, Jim. Well, may the Lord help us here as we try to understand what uh, we've just heard. First of all, I just want to give a little background to the book. Obviously, it was written by a man named James. But who was this James? There's at least four people in the New Testament that could be considered the author. But by far, the consensus of opinion is that the writer of this letter was actually James, the brother of the Lord. We know from New Testament accounts of Jesus' family that uh, his brothers were not believers, at least prior to the crucifixion and resurrection. We're told in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 5, that, quote, not even his brothers were believing in him. If you want to see who those brothers are, you can look in Matthew 13:55. We won't take the time to look that up right now, but one of them was uh, this man named James. But we are told that after the resurrection... Jesus specifically appeared to James. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15. This is an account of the various uh, people that Christ appeared to after the resurrection. And it says in 15.7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. But specifically uh, mentions James. And we know from the book of Acts especially that James rose to a position of prominence in the New Testament church after the uh, time of Pentecost. He became the leader of that uh, church there in Jerusalem. This would be around somewhere around uh, 44 A.D. And he was one of the two leaders that Paul met with in Jerusalem three years after uh, Paul's conversion. So let's turn to that. We're just trying to get a little feel here for this man. Uh, James, or uh, Galatians, Chapter 1, verse 19. Yeah, verse 18. Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any other of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. So there we know who we're talking about. We're talking about James, the Lord's brother, one of the leaders there in the church in Jerusalem. If we turn over to chapter 2, 
and verse 9 and 10 of, of Galatians, it says, And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. So here you have these leaders in the church in Jerusalem, and one of them is this brother of the Lord, James. Now, this is significant because if you turn back to the book of James, he doesn't mention that. What he says about himself is this, James, a bondservant of God. Now, Andy was talking about this thing of being a bondservant. That's what a Christian is. He just says, I am what you are, the people he's writing to. We are bondservants of God. I don't have any special distinction because I happen to grow up with this, this man. But the fact is, what pulls me apart, what makes me different, is that I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. As far as I can tell, we actually have two letters from two of the brothers fleshly brothers of Christ. The other one is Jude. If you turn to Jude, right before the book of Revelation, you see Jude presenting himself the same way. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. So here's, here's these two brothers, James and Jude, and they're both saying, what, what distinguishes us, what sets us apart, is the fact that we're bondservants of Jesus Christ. We were, we were his brothers, but that's not the big thing. Yeah. I think it's a really an amazing testimony of what, we're, what Paul taught in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17. He says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. They knew Christ better than anybody according to the flesh. They grew up with him. But he says, that's not what we recognize now. From now on, we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. They said the whole thing's changed now because we realize who this one really is. He's changed our lives. We are now not just his blood brothers. We are his bondservants. So, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The next thing I'd say about the background of this book is that uh, we need to consider who it was sent to. We're told that it was sent to the 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. Of course, when you hear this idea of there being 12 tribes, the thing that comes to your mind automatically is the Jewish people. That's who we think of when we think of the 12 tribes. But since it's addressed, this letter is addressed to Christian, we must conclude that it was written to Jewish Christians. So that's who the people that were receiving this letter, Jewish Christians. And uh, as we'll see, that these, these were people who were undergoing tremendous trials and temptations. What were these trials and, and temptations associated with? Well, the clue lies in this word dispersed to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. Greetings. The actual wording there is the 12 tribes who are in the dispersion. It was a title. These 12 tribes who are in the dispersion. It's, uh, that phrase is used in the New Testament 
to refer to the scattering of the Jews that had happened at various times throughout history. Clear back at the time of uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, they, they were dispersed in, in various places out of their, their country, out of Jerusalem, off into other places. Well, it happened a number of times to the Jewish people. Let's just look real quick here just to see that it is a, a technical term re- referring to the Jewish people. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 35. Keep your place there in James, but John 7, 35. They're talking with Christ here, and they're not understanding what he's saying. But anyway, in the, in the midst of that, it says, The Jews therefore said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we shall not find him? Is he not intending to go? He is not intending to go into the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? So there's that phrase, the dispersion. So that's what he's talking about here. That's the, the idea that he's using. But he's using it in a different way. He's using it in a Christian context now. The reason for this dispersion that James is talking about is persecution. And that we see this in the book of Acts in a number of places. Let's just look at these real quick. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, why were these Jewish Christians being dispersed out of Jerusalem? Well, we're told in Acts 8, 1, this was uh, in the time of Saul persecuting the church, and Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. That's the death of Stephen. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered, all scattered throughout the regions of Judah, Samaria, except for the apostles. And so they were being dispersed out of these Jewish Christians, were being pushed out of Jerusalem because of persecution. If you turn over to 1119, it says, So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews only. These were Jewish Christians who were being dispersed out of that area, out of Jerusalem, because of persecution. And then that had to do with the death of Stephen and Paul's or Saul's persecution. You also have persecution coming from the uh, beginning to come from the Roman authorities under Herod. You see that in uh, Acts 12, 1 through 3. Now about this same time, Herod the king laid hands on some belonging to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death by the sword. There's another one of the James, but this one wasn't the one that wrote the book of James. He was killed uh, right off here. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now this was in the days of the unleavened bread. So anyway, there's this persecution from from the Jewish people, from Saul and others like him, and there was a persecution from ones like Herod. Trying to get a picture of the background here, we can draw this conclusion that James was writing to Jewish believers, probably more than 8,000 people, because that, you know, there was 3,000 converted on on the day of Pentecost and 5,000 later, so at least 8,000 people we're talking about being pushed out of Jerusalem uh, because of persecution, scattered all around, and 
So we get a feel for what James was writing, the situation James was writing into when he wrote to these uh, 12 tribes who were dispersed abroad. If we think about it, these believers had been uprooted from their homes, their families, their cultural, <clears throat> their cultural surroundings there in Jerusalem, and they were having to live in very difficult situations out and around various regions there. I think we can get a little feel for this also, <clears throat> although this was written a little later on in the book of Hebrews, just the kind of situation that James was writing into. If we look at Hebrews 10:32, here the writer is writing to Jewish Christians. He said, But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. So just the kind of situation that these Jewish Christians, the early church, found themselves in was one of persecution and being pushed out of their normal living area there in Jerusalem. Certainly among James's readers were people who were experiencing confusion, fear, sorrow, injustice, loneliness, ostracism, poverty, sickness, loss of home and family, and uh, just even their livelihood. Uh, they you know, this was where they worked and lived there in Jerusalem. So he says, many trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Just a side note here. It seems from this letter that much of the persecution was coming from prominent and well-to-do uh, religious and political leaders in Jerusalem, people like Saul and, and Agrippa and also from wealthy landowners who wanted to maintain the status quo, their, their privileged position there in Jerusalem. They didn't want that upset by these Christians, Jewish Christians. And uh, I think it's just good to be reminded that true Christianity often runs counter to the lifestyle of cultural religion and a political system that tries to use religion in furthering their cause. It's good to get religion on your side if you can because it can make your bad behavior look kind of pious. Leaders were trying to do that and those that didn't want to lose their positions, their privileged positions there in Jerusalem were trying to do that, but they had to push the Christians out in order to do it. We should not forget that evil leaders know how to use religion for political and personal gain happens all the time down through history. Christians must keep on watch for this type of abuse of religion in any age. Well, that was just a little aside there. Let's get back then to the subject at hand here. Let me emphasize again that this letter was written to Jewish Christians. Uh, and that's what, the, you know, we forget this, but that's what the church was to begin with. It was Jewish Christians. There weren't any Gentiles yet uh, coming into the church. You can see this clearly if we back in James chapter 2. 
He says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. So he say, he's calling them brethren, but he's, they're Christians, you see. They're, they have a, uh, a faith in, a, in Christ. And then he says, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and he goes on and talks about if there also comes in a poor man. But the point I'm trying to get here or make here is that that word assembly is the word synagogue. It's used a, a, a number of times in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, for the synagogue, which is, of course, a Jewish congregation. This very terminology implies that this is a very early time of, of the Christian church because they were still meeting in the synagogue. It's, uh, in fact, Christianity for the first number of years was considered just a Jewish sect that uh, was just, you know, going off track. The Jews would say they're going off track, and that's how the uh, Romans viewed them. So we're, we're dealing with a time period here, certainly before 49 A.D., which is when the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 took place. So what we've tried to do here is give an idea of the writer, which is James, brother of the Lord, the recipients, Jewish Christians who are being scattered about because of persecution and a rough idea of when this letter was written sometime before 49 A.D. So that's the background. So what's he say to these people? Well, the first thing he says is greetings. Now, that's, that's just one word. If you, a lot of the New Testament letters have a much broader introduction to them. But he just says greetings. But we do miss something here if we do, don't know what uh, the actual Greek there is. This was amazing to me when I read this, the actual Greek that's translated greetings is joy be with you. Joy be with you. That's how he greets them. Joy be with you. You know, we'll kind of do that our, ourselves. We don't realize it, but if we say good morning, that's, it's not just a neutral term, you know. It's not just greetings. It's good morning. Good morning. Well, Paul, or, uh, James says joy be with you. Now, this letter was largely written to people who were not in a situation that we would normally consider joyful. But he starts out that way. They were largely poor people who were being exploited in some way by the rich and powerful. That comes out clearly in the rest of the letter. I would say this, one other thing as far as the background is, just trying to get a feel for this situation he's writing into. We're told in Acts 11:27 that there was a worldwide famine at this time. It was prophesied that there would be a worldwide famine. So they were probably dealing with that on top of all this other stuff we've mentioned uh, uh, related to being pushed out of Jerusalem, the persecution that forced them out of their situation. And it seems that James was writing because of their less than faithful response to these trials. Less than faithful response to these trials. As one commentator says, their inappropriate response to the oppression rather than the oppression itself is what James condemns, pointing out that they should seek in such circumstances the wisdom and gifts of God. They needed to be seeking God in this, but their, their response was not exactly appropriate. 
And this writer goes on to say, James is affirming a principle seen elsewhere in Scripture that makes a man or woman of God, what makes a, a man or a woman of God is not when things are going along well, but a proper response in any condition. That's what's going to make the difference. A proper or godly response uh, in any situation. And in this case, it had to do with very trying <clears throat> situations. It's not the circumstances, but the response to the circumstances that produces character. So, James exhorts these people to put aside all that remains of filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and in humility receive the word implanted which is able to save their souls. So you get a feel that these were not uh, very mature Christians. They needed to put aside what remains of wickedness and filthiness. In general, there is an immaturity about the people that James was addressing. As we shall see, this is evident in James's repeated exhortations that faith needs to result in actions, that it's wrong to show partiality, that it's wrong to be judgmental, that their way of speaking to each other was worldly, and that their tendency towards self-confidence and arrogance needed to be dealt with. He's, he's, he really comes on strong on these things to these people. Just in summary then, the great theme of the book could be put like this. Authentic faith perseveres under trials and produces godly character. That's what the great theme of the book is. Authentic faith perseveres under trials and produces godly character. James was against hypocrisy and sham in every form, any kind. He wanted authenticity in religion. He says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is to visit the poor and the, the widow. Don't be deceived, he said, if you don't bridle your tongue, your religion's in vain. He's, he wanted to bring forth from these people pure and undefiled religion. And he uh, wanted authenticity in faith. He said, faith without works is dead. James wrote this letter to instruct, correct, rebuke, and encourage those believers to put their total trust in Christ and not fall back into old worldly ways of thinking and acting. Authentic faith is a living and active thing. And this is what James is emphasizing here. If it's not living, it's dead. <laughs> and it's not real. And you've got the wrong thing. Authentic faith is a living and active thing. It changes you because God's word of truth has been brought home to your heart and you've become a new creature. Basically, he's saying if you don't have life, you're dead. That's pretty simple, isn't it? If you don't have real life coming out of your life, you're, you're dead. Let's look briefly then at the first 18 verses here. Which, which James begins to show us what authentic faith is. Authentic living faith is like this. He says that, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Authentic faith will rejoice in trials because it realizes that 
testing develops steadfastness, which will ultimately make us perfect and complete, lacking nothing. This is what authentic faith does. It rejoices in trials, not because of the trial itself, but because of what God's doing through the trial to perfect you, to make you into what God would have you to be. James acknowledges the presence, presence of extremely unhappy experiences in his, in his readers' lives. Note I said unhappy. We're not talking about happiness here. We're talking about considering it all joy. There's a big difference. Happiness has to do with your circumstances, and it can go up and down. Joy is an attitude based on faith in God as far as how James is using it here. So he, he's, not, he's not denying that they're in difficult situations or what you might call un, uh, experiencing un, unhappy experiences. At the same time, James counsels these readers to rejoice during these very experiences of hardship because suffering can be used by God to make his people more Christ-like. There was a German theologian named Helmut Thielecki. Uh, he was actually a Christian in Germany in the time of Hitler. And he was asked once as to what he saw was the greatest defect among American Christians. His response was, they have an inadequate view of suffering. I thought that was pretty insightful. They had... They have an inadequate view of suffering. Trials test our faith and produce perseverance, and perseverance produces maturity. This is the same thing that, uh, that uh, Paul taught in Romans. Let me just read it to you quickly here. Romans 5, 3 through 5, he says, And not only this, but we also exalt in tribulations. That's rejoicing. In trials, you see, we exalt in tribulation, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. He's not, James is not saying anything different than, than what Paul would say here. He's saying that trials are brought into our life by God as a testing to produce, to strengthen us, to make us more Christ-like, to, so that we will persevere through the trial and become more mature. For us then, I mean, we're sitting here in various situations. Some of us have some trials more than others. I think significant that he says, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, not if you encounter various trials, because we will encounter various trials. They come to, to us in various ways. But the point is, is that if this trial, if you react to the trial rightly, it can be used for your good. And we don't want to be robbed of our joy by supposing that our particular trial is not a suitable context in order to apply this passage. What I mean by that is somehow, you know, well, the suffering somebody else is going through, the trial they're going through, God might use that. But my trial's different. You know, your trial isn't different in the sense that God can still use it. It might be different than the other person's trial, but it's still 
one that God can use to make you more Christ-like. It can be used for your sanctification. And don't be robbed of your joy by allowing any doubt of God's goodness to creep in into your heart and mind. Often the question comes, why is this happening? We don't understand the purpose for the trial. What should we do then? You know, we, we're confused. We're wondering what's going on. Well, stop trusting and start worrying. Wrong answer. Cease fellowship and, and withdraw. Withdraw from other people. Wrong answer. Cease seeking God's truth and start using the world's ways to try to get out of the trial. Wrong answer. Well, what's the right answer? Ask God for wisdom in dealing with the trial. That's what, that's what James says here. Right after he's talking about this thing of um, endurance, uh, he goes on, but if anyone lacks wisdom, he's talking about wisdom in what to do in the trial. I mean, we can take it in general. That's a general verse. But we, it, in this context, he's saying, if you lack wisdom in knowing what to do in this situation, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to ask God. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all men graciously and without reproach, and it will be given to them. So that's the first thing. Authentic, authentic faith will rejoice in trials because it realizes that this testing is something that can, develop, can be used by God to develop steadfastness, and that will ultimately bring about a Christ-like character. What else does authentic faith do? Well, we're told in verse 5 through 8, he looks to God, asks for wisdom. Verse 6, But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all, all his ways. Authentic faith will pray to God for wisdom and understanding in trials. God may not tell us why he brings certain trials, but he can show us what we need to do in order to persevere in the trial. One thing James emphasizes is do not doubt. Don't doubt God. And that's the big temptation, isn't it? I mean, when, the, when it's a really significant trial, the temptation is doubt God. Doubt God's goodness. Doubt God's care. Now, doubt here, as, as James is using it, I think is much more than just uncertainty about God, how God might answer our prayers or an uncertainty as to why God is allowing a particular difficulty or trial. If we take this verse in a superficial way, we would end up with God answering very few prayers of his people. Because there's a lot of uncertainty in our lives. Not only that, it would put God's people in bondage thinking that if there's the least bit of uncertainty or questioning in our prayer and our request to God, he's not going to answer it. That's not what he's saying here. It's a, I mean, if, if, you take, if you took it that way, it's almost like uh, God's up there listening to your prayer, and he's, he's saying, well, I see a little bit of uncertainty there, no answer for you. That's not the way God is. He just told us the way God is. He said, uh, God, uh, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men gra uh, generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's the way God is. He wants to answer. 
He's not looking, he's not there just looking for any little bit of doubt that might be there and saying, well, you're, you're out. I'm not going to answer you. That's not what he's talking about here. Doubt here is referring to something much deeper. It's being in two minds. Being in two minds. Trying to do things our way and God's way at the same time. It means to be double, uh, be a double-souled person. That's the actual literal there, a double-souled person. Now, I don't know if any of you saw uh, any of these series of movies, Lord of the Rings, but there's this strange, creepy little creature in there, (laughs) Gollum. And if ever there was a double-binded creature, he was one, vacillating back and forth. That's the kind of thing, if you, if you saw that, you'd know. I mean, he's t- one minute, oh, the precious ring. He's, and then another minute, he's thinking about, well, he needs to love people and, and, and show friendship. But then he'll turn right around and do the opposite. Back and forth, back and forth. You never know what he's going to do next. Well, that's the kind of thing he's talking about, a double-souled person, a person whose heart loyalties are divided, a person who has not decided to give his or her life and love to God. The doubt, then, is a vacillation between self-reliance and God-reliance. And this is, this is what James is saying. It's not going to work. You, God's not going to answer that. You can't face in two directions and look to God. Such an attitude of vacillation between faith and unbelief brings instability, he says. It's like the surf of the sea. The imagery here is a rising and falling, up and down like the waves of the sea, a person going back and forth between reliance on God and skeptical uncertainty. That's the kind of thing he's talking about here. And he says, let not that man think that he'll receive anything from the Lord. His whole life is one course of indecision. He's not looking to God from a stance of faith, and for this person there is no promise that God will give wisdom or anything else. The person with this double-minded attitude, what do they need to do? They need to repent. Now, he tells us that later on if you skip over to chapter uh, 4, verse 8. This is what that kind of person needs to do. Well, let's start with 7. Submit, therefore, to God. That's what he's not doing. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's that idea of being double-minded. If you're double-minded, you need to repent, not think that God's going to answer that type of a, a request because it's, it's not truthful, it's not real, it's not heartfelt. Authentic faith, another area. Let's look at uh, verse 9. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position and let the Rich man, glory in his humiliation, because like the flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Authentic faith will let the Christian, that is, that's poor, and by poor I mean much more than just monetarily. Uh, it's being... Poor in the eyes of the world, which can have to do with more than just money. It can have to do with being weak and despised, the base of the earth, as Paul says. That's who he's talking about here. And he says, 
Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. Authentic faith will let the Christian that is poor take pride in his high position as a child of God. That's what authentic faith will do. It's not going to be moaning and groaning all the time about their low position. They're going to be exalting in the fact that they're God's child. It also lets the rich person realize that he'll soon have nothing. Now, I'm not sure if he's talking about a Christian here when he goes on, he goes from the brother of humble circumstances to the, the rich man, but he says to glory in his humiliation. So it makes me think it's possible that he might be speaking here of uh, Christians who were somewhat well-to-do, who had been pushed out of Jerusalem and probably lost some of what they, they had just because of the present persecution. That's possible. That's what he means here. It, but for sure, he's saying that they should not put any confidence in their riches, which will soon totally pass away. Now, the reason I say I'm not sure that he's talking about Christian here, because in the rest of the letter, he definitely, when he's talking about the rich and the well-to-do and the prosperous, he's definitely not talking about Christians. It's very clear from the rest of the letter that the rich and prosperous are viewed as very antagonistic to God's people and the gospel. We'll see that when we go on. But right now, just this truth, that authentic faith will let the Christian who is in a poor condition take pride in his high position as a child of God. Authentic faith will also realize that the person who perseveres under trials is blessed because he shall receive the crown of life. You see that in verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So authentic faith realizes that perseverance will bring the blessing of the crown of life. The crown of life is worth more than avoiding the trial. That's what authentic faith realizes. The crown of life is worth more than avoiding the trial. To those who endure to the end, it's those who endure to the end that will be saved. That's what Christ taught. And uh, it's true that all of us need to have faith and patience in order to inherit the promises. Faith and endurance. So what's that mean? I mean, putting it in practical terms, really, getting right down to what it means in our lives. And this, put a thousand things here, but let me just mention a few. When a Christian's spouse is unfaithful and abandons the marriage, is Christ still worth obeying? When a Christian's financial security is threatened or wrecked, is Christ still worth trusting? When a Christian's physical health is crippled, is Christ still worth adoring? When a family member is killed, this was happening in the early church, you see. When a family member is killed, is Christ still worth serving? When a Christian's actions are misunderstood and slandered, is Christ still worth our devotion? Even if the Christian loses everything else, is Christ still worth honoring? And is the crown of life still worth persevering in faith? Well, this the authentic faith says, yes, it is. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Blessed is the man who perseveres 
under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So authentic faith perseveres. Authentic faith also recognizes that our trials are sent by God for our good, but our temptations arise from our own wrong desires. Let's just read it here. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot, tempt, God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And when lust is conceived, it brings forth, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. One man said, any trial wrongly used may become a temptation. That's worth thinking about. Any trial wrongly used may become a temptation. What do we mean by temptation? We mean an enticement to do wrong, a solicitation to do evil. Our lusts incite us, incite us to commit sin, and sin will lead to the punishment of death. I think it's important to realize that lust does not just have to do with sexual sin. We're so used in our sex-saturated culture when we talk about lust to think of sexual sin. Well, that's one aspect of it. But any strong desire outside of God's will can be a lust. That's That's what he's talking about here. It might be a lust for power. It might be a lust for wealth. It might be a lust for status. It might be a lust for possessions. It might be a lust just to be in control of other people. It's all kinds of desires outside of God's will that fall under this category of lust. Basically, it has to do with exalting self. When we deal with a trial in faith, we see it as a means of growth in godliness. But when a trial is dealt with in a selfish way, the trial becomes a temptation to sin. And sin then, which becomes part of our life, if we do this over and over, it's going to bring forth death. He's talking about spiritual death here. I I did a diagram of this. Now, some people, my wife's not helped by these things at all, but I am. She says, I think too logically. She's intuitive. But for you logical people. (laughs) Okay, the point I'm trying to make here is that the trial is what we start with. But how you react to the trial makes a big difference. If you react, if you receive it in faith as a test from God, it's going to bring forth steadfastness and maturity, and eventually the crown of life. That's the first one. If you take that trial and react from your own selfish desires, your lusts, it becomes a temptation, and then the outcome is totally different. That brings forth sin, and persistent unbelief in sin, what's that lead to? Death. It's the crown of life one way, death the other way. And that's what, that's what James is saying here. He's saying, 
Don't allow doubt of God. Don't turn to the world's ways. Don't go that route just because of your, your selfish desires because that will take that trial make it to a temptation and that temptation will bring forth sin and eventually death will come from that. If persecution, poverty, scorn, or any other trials brings doubt into our hearts, realize that this is a, this temptation to not trust God arises from our own evil desires, not any desire of God. This is what James is saying. This is, if you turn that into a temptation, that's not from God. The trial is from God. But that wrong way of reacting, don't try to blame that on God. God never solicits us to do evil. God does just the opposite of this. Now, when I was reading through this section, the question came to me, well, why doesn't James bring up Satan here when he's dealing with the subject of temptation? I mean, that's what we always think about, the tempter. Well, I think the reason he doesn't is because he wants to emphasize our responsibility in sin. We have no excuse for sin. There's nothing and no one we can blame when we sin but ourselves. Now, you've got to get that. We, I've got to get that. Because we always go the other way. This person, that event, this situation, I didn't feel good, this, that, or the other thing. There is no excuse for sin. We're carried, we sin when we're carried away and enticed by our own lusts and sinful passions. Again, you know... I mentioned early on that one man said this book is severely practical. Well, this is one of the areas we need to be severely practical in, calling sin, sin, and recognizing our responsibility. Who or what do we blame for our sin? Do we blame our spouse, our physical condition, our children, our neighbor, our teacher, our boss, the economy, our background, our upbringing. Uh, I mean, we go off into all kinds of... We can, we can even blame our genetic makeup. But the worst thing, would, worst possible thing, would be to blame God. And this is what uh, James brings out here. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. No, that came from you. We're the guilty one. No one made you sin. Not even the devil. He doesn't bring it up here, but I'll just put that in. Not even the devil. I'm responsible. I'm the one who needs to repent. Not my brother, not my sister, but me, O oh Lord. And we need to especially... Avoid the thought of blaming God. Only good and perfect things come from Him. Real faith acknowledges His complete goodness in all things. We're talking about authentic faith. Well, authentic faith acknowledges His complete goodness, never changing, complete goodness in all things that He does. We're just about done here. Authentic faith... Verse 16 and 17, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. 
Every good thing bestowed and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Authentic faith will remember that God bestows every good thing and every perfect gift. He never changes in his ways of dealing with those who trust him. We, don't, we, never, we should never be deceived by our own lust into thinking that God is not perfectly good. You're not good. He's good. God has an undivided, unwavering intent always to give good gifts to those who trust him. An undivided, unwavering intent to always good gifts, always give good gifts to those who trust him. And then lastly, for our time here this morning, authentic faith will also remember that he's the one that initiated our salvation. He brought about our spiritual rebirth through his word of truth. You see that in verse 18. For in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. He's always good, and part of that, a big part of that goodness is displayed in the fact that by the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. He brought us forth through the word of truth. And he's doing that, it says, making us the first fruits among his creation. Now, I think James was thinking here particularly of these first Jewish Christians. They were the first fruits of what was going to be the church through the ages. Just like the first, you know, the first fruits idea came from the Old Testament. When the harvest is just about ready to be brought in, they'd take the first fruits and bring it to the Lord. It was a token of, uh, of the fact, well, saying, we know this is from you and there's much more to come. And that's what uh, James is saying here. These Jewish Christians were the first fruits, and there's much more to come. But I do think also he could be, or we could take this even in a greater way, in that Christians through the centuries are the first fruits of God's new creation, which will be completed when Christ comes again and establishes a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're all just first fruits in the sense of, we're part of this new creation. If you're a Christian, you're part of an, the new creation that God's making. You're the first fruits of that. He's going to make a whole new heavens and new earth someday yeah. in which righteousness still dwells. But right now what he's done is he's made Christians. He's made you as first fruits. In closing, surely we can see that this message of James is very appropriate for us today. When we encounter trials, what do we do? Do we fear what's going to become of me? Do we get angry? How can they do that to me? Do we go around grumbling and complaining? Why am I always having problems? Do we wallow in self-pity? Won't somebody feel sorry for poor me? Do we begin to envy others? Why don't they have to go through this? Why is, it, why is it just me? Do we stumble around in confusion, saying, why is this happening? With these reactions, we often fall into precisely the problems James addresses to these, uh, these early readers. 
a jealous focus on material wealth, a selfish neglect of others. You get all wallowed around, you see, in, in why me type of thing, selfish neglect of others, a judgmental spirit and hurtful speech. All these things come out later on in the book. Bitter fighting amongst one another. As James says later in the letter, brethren, these things ought not to be. This just ought not to be, not amongst God's people. Well, how do you keep from that wrong, these type of wrong reactions when trials seem to be overwhelming? Well, you do what James says here. Look to God for wisdom and faith and strength and grace to help in time of need. He will give these good things to those who ask him and keep on asking. He wants to give those good things of wisdom in this trial and grace to go through the trial and faith. Those are good things God wants to give. He's good. He wants to give those good things to those who will ask and keep on asking. He's graciously brought you and I, if we're Christians, he's brought us forth by the word of truth so that we'll be the first fruits of this new creation and he'll see us through the trials if we'll look to him so we'll take up there next time beginning with verse 19 and go on <clears throat> to the end of the chapter uh, seeking to try to again be severely practical in our understanding of authentic faith